Thanks for tuning into the Life in the Front Office podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kirschman. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And thanks to Suja Organic for their support. Remember, you can get 15% off any one-time pack on shop.sujajuice.com with the code LIFO, L-I-F-O. And enjoy today's episode. Welcome to today's episode on the Life in the Front Office podcast presented by Suja Organic. I'm your host, Jake Kirschman. Excited to have our guest back for episode two, uh, Dennis Mannion. Dennis, it's uh, it's been a while since we had you on, but uh, excited to have you back for another episode. And, um, you know, in your first episode, we covered, you know, your, the whole gamut of your career path, um, you know, leading multiple teams uh, across the big sports and uh, your journey there, um, you know, Phillies, Pistons, et cetera. But one of, one of the things that it has been really interesting keeping, keeping up with you and keeping connected is uh, your want to give back to other people, your want to coach people, um, and to be able to share a lot of the lessons that you've learned over your journey and your career uh, thus far. And you've kind of created a framework that we'll get into um, around kind of love, energy, and work. And so um, excited to share that with people and, and give them insight into the lessons that you've learned over time and uh, how it can help make you the best version of yourself. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Chick. It's great to be back. Was that was that a proper introduction? I feel like yeah, was, that was perfect. Pretty, perfect. pretty good to kick it off. So I think, um, you know, for, for the audience listening, if you haven't listened to the first episode with Dennis, uh, Dennis, give give a quick, super high level where you've been, what you've done, where you are now. You bet. So I started my career in Philadelphia with the Phillies, and that was pretty magical because I started at the low end in sales, in ticket sales, and the, the company was very progressive, like crazy database, amazing processes, you know, to get to clients and how to segment and appeal to their segments. So it was a great, believe it or not, 15-year uh, journey through the Phillies. And at a certain point, I had um, been lucky enough to become one of their youngest vice presidents uh, for marketing and sales. And uh, shortly after the 96 All-Star Game, I started to get recruited by Major League Baseball and several other entities, including Madison Square Garden. And, um, you know, I wasn't planning on leaving. And then out of nowhere, I had an offer to go to the Avalanche and the Nuggets to run both of the business ventures for, for both teams. And they were in a, an old arena, McNichols Arena, and it, on, this, on the horizon was the building of Pepsi Center. So it was an amazing opportunity to move from Philly, which was painful, to go to Denver and get into two totally separate cultures. And that's where I started to get the culture bug, understanding uh, how hockey thought and how the GM directed the team and how that would rhythm with the business side. And also looking at the basketball side and how they ran their culture and how we would work with them. And it had big impacts on how we manage our content because there's a, a mindset, there's an identity to both of those teams and you had to rhythm with it. So that's where I got the collaboration bug where I realized like, wow, we've got to put operations, revenue driving disciplines, and then all the creative and communications into three buckets, but have them universally talk to each other. So that was cool. Um, sad for me, I had a five-year contract there, but the team did sell and I opted, I had another offer with the Ravens 
and I opted to go back to the East Coast as the head of business ventures at the Ravens. And I love that opportunity because now you could take the pillars of culture that you built at the Avs, and which is very dynamic, and bring it to one team in a you know in a monster league where you have an empty con- you have an open uh, content palette you know all through the week getting to the big game, and it also offered offered up the opportunity to take memory making, merchandising, and marketing and put them all together. So you know things got complicated. You'd start creating six TV shows, six radio shows. And man, if everybody wasn't working in tune, you could have a miserable culture because the ops guys would be upset about what the marketing folks put together, et cetera. So um, it was there. And oddly enough, that um, from a culture standpoint, I was up at our our second home in New Hampshire and I was cross-country skiing across the lake one day because it's frozen, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden I stopped. I am weird. I admit it. And I took a ski pole and I started drawing out this thing called RISE. And it stood for realize, improve, share, and expand your talents about the individual. And then I was thinking, wow, how do you put that together with a bigger organization? How's that all fit with the team? And started, I wrote out Halo, high above life's obstacles as a team. And from that, I started to develop the protocols that go with that. For example, the, the values that go with it, the identity that you're pursuing and the protocols to get to that. So that was the breakthrough, really, with the Ravens having that ability to put together two programs. One was called um, was called the Ring of Honor, which represented the, the the talents that you need to operate as a team. The other one was called Legends Ladder, which was a seven step process to maximize yourself as an individual. So I had that bug then. Um, even though I promised my wife I'd never go back to baseball and I'd never go to the West Coast, I took a job with the Dodgers as their uh, as CEO. And president there. And that was another wonderful opportunity from a completely different culture base, different identity for the for the, the ball club. You know, the Dodger way is mythical, but it's actually real. And you had to apply, you know, what is the GM thinking to how do we position the team? And we also had some some big barriers in Los Angeles to overcome. We'd lost a big base out of the west side of LA, which is, you know, where. Beverly Hills and Bel Air and the big hitters are. And so we we embarked on a number one, of course, improving the team, which happened under, under that ownership. And then secondly, hey, how do we appeal to all these different demos in special ways? So it gave me an opportunity to take Rise, Halo, and a new, new program called Leap and put that together for the staff to say, this is how we'll rhythm. And it was there that uh, we discovered this is really wild. Again, ops creative and communications, and then all of sales, how do you get them to rhythm? And oddly enough, uh, you're putting basically finance, legal, HR, and IT in as the collaborative agent that rhythms through those three circles to make them turn. You go, how would that happen? Well, you need legal documents for a lot of the IPs you create, and you certainly need a P&L test you know, with your CFO, and definitely you need the accelerator, you know, which, is, which is IT essentially. So um, that was really amazing because you're talking about a franchise that's legendary, basically put 56,000 people into that ballpark every single night. And you're thinking like, oh, wow, is everything about game day revenue? And you start to realize like, no, we could be doing lots of outside events, lots of experiential type things. And for aside from all that, we could build a wicked um, content-based website 
with all the digital uh, access that we had. So um, again, you're talking about very um, forward thinking uh, business organizations, and you're needing to know that everybody can, can walk in lockstep. And so we created not just the value, not just the identity of the team, but also the, the big vision for it, uh, the values that go with that, and how do you do that with culture? So that, that was a long-winded way of saying how culture interested I got. Um, uh, my last and final part in my 36 years of team sports was with the Rave, uh, was, excuse me, with the Pistons. Whole nother problem, sports-saturated city. Red Wings were killing it. The Tigers were killing it. Michigan and Michigan State, killing it. Lions of the NFL. So it didn't matter if they killed it or not, people were going. So you've got this sports saturated, very similar to Phoenix. And if you're the down team, which the which the Pistons were for years, I mean, they were big dogs in the late, you know, late 80s, less so all through the 90s, had this one magical year in 2004 with Chauncey Billup and won the whole deal. But from that time on to the time that the owner bought that team, uh, they were downhill. And they were playing very, very poorly. Um, and that's another point, too. Their legendary owner, Bill Davidson, passed away, I think, in 2008. And it took until 2011 to sell the club. So you had, think about the employee's mindset. Oh, the owner's not here anymore. Then the CEO had been there for a long, long time. He left and he went to the enemy. He went to the, to, and took some people with him, by the way, to, to both the Red Wings and the Tigers. So now, you know, you have this culture that's scared to death um, or bored, one of the two. They either have anxiety or depression. <laughs> and uh, it was a very big staff that had, um, I would say, very traditional business practices. Nothing wrong with what they did. It just was kind of old school compared to what it had gotten into. And that goes from market segmentation, content development, cultural rules, um, how they did their ticketing, all those things had to be unraveled, even broadcasting and redone. And to add to it, the pressure being that the ownership was basically a private equity company. Uh, the owner clearly was the owner of the private equity company, but you had that ethos of two people coming into that building and then starting to ask very pointed questions of a very nervous staff and basically put them on the, in the frying pan. And then, uh, this is all pre-hiring a new CEO, uh, they started to exit people because they thought it was too big of a staff, very typical of a private equity company to thin it down. Um, I interviewed for that job and my understanding was that uh, they were picky to the point where the recruiter told me they had interviewed 58 candidates. And I was unavailable at the time for two reasons. One, I was working for another private equity company after the Dodgers to roll up uh, youth sports teams. That was one, one issue that I had with it. And the other, one, the other one was that I had a contract, believe this or not, with the Phoenix uh, Coyotes. And unfortunately, the prospective owner that was going to buy that, it fell through. So um, make a long story short, I, I was a hard nut to get. And when I met with that team, I thought, oh, my math was, oh, the owner is in L.A. He's not planning to be in Detroit. Yay. Because I figured, OK, I got a little bit of latitude here. And secondly, they had, you know, deep pockets. So I, my thinking was they can buy players that, you know, it's all about the product and they can help them, give them the resources to let the GM do his job, the coach do his job, so forth. Um, 
as it turned out, it was really hard to take a culture that is used to stripping down businesses and reselling them and then inherit a, a staff that had some, oh, I would call fairly old school business practices. And they had an attitude about them that, you know, the bad boy thing never went away. They still had that, which was a good thing. They still had that pride in the, in the place, but they had gotten to a place where they're delivering something like 5,000 comps a game just to get people to come, which we all know is not a very good business practice. So I went in there and you talk about a cultural explosion, uh, almost with a mandate to replace all the executives. So that's step one, daunting and scary. And I explained to ownership, you do that. Some of these people are local heroes because they've been there for 30 years. You're going to feel that flack. I'm going to feel that flack. But we had to do that. And so we went through that. So you're, again, here's this culture, scared to death. A lot of people have exited. Everyone thinks they're the next one out. New people coming in, which was another whole deal. So if you didn't have your culture well laid out, you've got a real problem. So we did get that done and we did create an awful lot. We gutted all the floors, created different, like think about three football fields stacked with each different discipline on each one. And the white tower, of course, for the admin people, you know, who needed quiet space. So anyway, we get through that, um, did that for roughly six seasons and then a seventh year consulting. And during that seventh year is when I started to think about, hey, I've done this for a long time. The pressure, honestly, of wins and losses became so immense that you almost felt like, what could I do besides leveraging the music side to drive people into the basketball side when they're playing at a 335 win percentage, which is tough. So um, I you know, had been doing a lot of counseling one-on-one -on -one with the folks that were at the Pistons, but then I started to reach out to some other folks and see if they needed any, any help, any background culturally. And that's how I started House, House of Seven, basically when I was still in their, in their employee, but not taking any time away from my piston job, but just starting this new entity. And, um, you know, the, the interesting thing, I think the universe works in interesting ways. Um, during that time, somehow, some way, I got very sick, and I wasn't going to talk about this, but I will real quickly, with an unknown disease. Let's just put it that way. I couldn't move my neck, my back, zero energy. Testimony of the team, they flied me to several different medical centers, which gave all different opinions mostly just go and get PT. And it kept getting worse to the point where I honestly could not get in and out of a chair and I wore ice most of the day. Finally, one of the piston trainers directed me to a place called Resilience Code, which is in Colorado, run by a neurosurgeon uh, named Chad Prusmack. He's a brilliant, brilliant neurosurgeon who got into another business, which was to get to the root cause of different types of uh, human performance factors, which could be illness or it could just be the way in which your mindset works. Um, the basis of it was, and I thought it was extremely cool, they're gonna totally dive deep into your blood, your body and your brain, analyze that and get to the determination of the things that are causing your issues. And it was pretty funny to go into a neurosurgeon and him say, I looked at your film, your neck and your back are just fine. You got a bigger issue. And lo and behold, after six weeks of testing, they found chronic Lyme. And uh, smart guy, by the way, he started me in the program, looked at my background. He said, hey, I have an idea. Um, 
I will put you and your wife in my condo if you'll stay here and help me turn my business around. It was a startup, losing about a million eight a year. Um, there were some simple solutions, but a lot of it got right back to how are we going to roll our culture? How are we going to get PT training? Um, you know, the, the biological team, the psychologist, the neurofeedback for all to work as one unit around one body. Because the cool thing about the program, it's an N equals one program where Jake, you would be very different than I would be genetically the whole nine yards and be treated differently. So anyway, um, that really became dynamic because now you're talking about human beings, which is an X factor. Will they comply? Will they do the program or won't they? And you start, I started to get into, okay, I'm really into the physicality, uh, the physical issues that are existing with people. And I'm diving a little bit into the mental resilience that they had there. And uh, I remembered that I had done a, a pretty fun interview with a fellow named Brian Johnson, who created a program called Optimize. And I re-engaged with Brian and he told me, hey, I'm doing something new. I'm launching a new program called Heroic. It's optimized, which are all these great, you know, it's like the a synthesis of, of all these great self-development type books. But he said, I'm on to something new where I think we can divide your dimensions as a person into three huge circles. Your identity in work, your identity in love, your direct and your identity in, uh, in your energy level. And the more I thought about it, I said, man, the energy drives the other two. And the theory of it was, okay, you say that you're, let's say you identify yourself in energy as an athlete. So as an athlete, what behaviors would you go after to solve or to make your energy the best? And the, the way in which I looked at it was, well, you're looking at sleep, you're looking at your nutrition, you're looking at your amount of activity that you do, your recovery, and probably your breathing. So think about that, five things for energy. And now you go down that path of individualizing the protocols that you will use to best sleep, to best recover, to best work out, to best eat. And it's hard because you have to get into a pattern of time blocking everything right down to the deep work that you do, the family time that you put in and so forth. So that caught fire for me. And the, I would say, the seven clients that I had in, in the mentoring part of it, the advising part of it, um, I started to experiment with them with the program, much of it laid out by resilience code and heroic, a combo of the two, and then my own kind of cultural ideas that go with it as well. And uh, it's boomed. You know, you're watching people say, this changed my life. I can't believe how great this is. I'm saying, well, go get healthy at resilience code and go sign up for heroic. <laughs> it's a great way to put them all together. And um, that's, that's what's kind of launched this, uh, actually propelled this House of Seven. So I'm still doing the sports-oriented consultations where I can get them. And then, of course, Resilience Code and, and a, a video archival company that I work with. But my real passion has been, as you suggested in the beginning, hey, man, you've done this for, you know, three and a half decades. You know a bazillion people. Start helping people, you know, and ultimately in this you know, huge march toward, you know, more diversity in sports and entertainment. My real passion would have been to take people that are being pushed into higher level jobs that they haven't had the background in. I would love to be advising them 
you know, that would be, that's the ultimate target. But I mean, I mean, just, uh, wow. Right. Like I, I my mic drop, I, I don't even know if I have to ask any more questions, but I think, uh, when I, when I hear you talk about all of that, like you can, you can feel the passion in what you are describing, right. And, and what your experiences have been around culture, how it fits within different organizations. I mean, just hearing you explain how culture was oriented, uh, resolved, built, whatever it was at each and every different place based on the circumstance, the market, the nuances. I mean, it's it's all fascinating, right? But I think the one thing that comes to my mind really too is, you know, you talked about what, which again, we'll get into a little bit deeper on the, the love, energy and work, but it, it truly comes down to discipline in terms of having the discipline to, to, put all of that together, put a plan together and then stick to it. Um, but secondly, going back to your culture piece, it's one thing to create that awesome idea that you're drawing in the snow, right? With, with the acronym and, and you know, you get people kind of jazzed up about, oh, this is a cool acronym and, and I'll put it on, you know, my desk or whatever, but to actually implement it, right? It is, is the hardest part and to implement it in a way that, it then actually comes to life. It works. You're you're there to see that through, and you can then adjust on the fly as as you go. But if if you could peel all the onion layers back and say, what's the hardest part about the implementation factor of mm -hmm. these acronyms or programs that you've built in each and every place? What's the hardest part about implementing? Well, like anything, it it's sort of a Bill Belichick thing. It's consistency right that's that's the it's it's clarity number one and consistency number two and we literally on each floor had wall murals that took you through all the steps and how we work however the real key to it uh a mutual friend of ours joe walsh having him at your side to be able to work from an hr standpoint with every employee one by one to see if they understand it and then having him apply his own genius to it of a, a subjective and an objective way in which you can have a conversation around these cultural pillars that you create so whether it's from hard work all the way to productivity uh joe put together a program where people self they, they kind of basically scored themselves and then you have a conversation so it's not your manager it's not your director, it's not your VP talking down to you about here's what I think. You let them express how they feel about their work ethic is, how they feel their focus is, how they feel their commitment is, their willpower, you know, and, 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 and how are they doing with self-growth and how are they doing with team growth and being proactive. And um, without that kind of help, without that, that right-hand person to drive it every single day and use the anacronyms, which was really key, so clarity and consistency. Clarity and consistency, but then how do you make sure that, I mean, look at it, the, the culture starts with the people that are there, right? So then figuring out, okay, does this culture acronym that I'm trying to build fit who's actually in those spots uh, in the organization and, and, you know, will it continue to grow or do you need different people that will, you know, buy into to this? And that, and that's, both the business side and the player side, right? It's, you know, if, if again, to your point about Belichick and his, his way and 
uh, how the program's built and so on. Like if you're not going to buy in, then it's finding another team. That's exactly right. And so the, the way that, you know, I always looked at that was, okay, you go around and you ask coaches, what's the identity of your team? And 90% of them won't have an answer. They'll talk to our defensive coordinator or whatever. So it all starts with, okay, here's our vision and what best fits. Let's say our vision was bring people together and thrill them. And then you turn around and you say, well, what, what talents do we have to, what prism do we look through every day of how do we feel and how do we execute? So in one team's circumstance, identified thoughtful, progressive, passionate. And then you look at the individual and you have to make that assessment, forgetting whether they're good at sales, ops, admin, whatever. And that was the first litmus test. The second one would be, heck, you have talent that have been misplaced. It happens all the time. You find someone in operations that would be magical on, on the creative side because they have great operational creativity. Or you find someone in sales that would be really good in ops. And so we would make judiciously those trades and move them into better positions. And part of that was Joe created a Facebook page of every single employee. And each of those circles I spoke to, which basically is four, were a different color code. So you go in and you go, orange is ops. You go in and you look at ops. And from every single employee, what are the top three things that they do? So when we're looking at them, we're thinking, are they capable of executing those top three things? Or would they be more capable over another department in another position? Um, I learned a really hard lesson um, back when I was very, very young, my first transition to the Avs and Nugs. You know, the Phillies are a very loyal culture. Some people laugh and say, oh, it's job for life, but there was a magic to loyalty. So I was built with loyalty when I went there. And you sit around a table with all your execs on your first meeting and everybody's smiling and nodding their head. And then to your point, you find out later, they're smiling and nodding their head, but they're going to keep doing what they were doing. And that lesson that I learned is sometimes you have to make exits. And that's, that's frustrating. But you also have to look at it like, hey, I got hired to do a job, to create a winning culture that supports another winning culture, hopefully on the team side. In a perfect world, in a perfect world, you get an owner that figures out <laughs> that you have to integrate, integrate your, your team and your business operations so you're all applying the exact same principles. That makes it so much better. Rare, though, very rare because of the turnover in GM and coaching positions. They come with wholly different cultural principles. Well, and, and on the business side, a little bit harder to just get rid of a player, right? Uh, on the team side, hey, not cutting it. All right, see you later, right? Business side, a little bit more difficult to do that uh, in a way of, to your point, rearranging the pieces, right? And, and, and all that. When you think about the culture piece, though, and how it impacts the individual and their, again, forget the product uh, in terms of winning or losing, right? But truly a place that the person wants to go to work every day and be a part of the family, the culture, whatever they're building. How do you figure out how to impact the individual separately from the larger team to drive kind of the mission from the top down and make sure that there's kind of this 
holistic uh, identity? Well, I think caring is maybe that's the third C in all this is I, I honestly believe that um, and no, no offense to, you know, the, the um, operational person that's cleaning the floors every night. I think you have to have those individual discussions where they understand you actually care about them as an individual. Are they in the right place? And are they progressing in a certain way? And it, it does force you on some level to create some minor rules, you know, about your culture. Like it might be one that says no villains, no victims. We don't do that. And then you can have conversations with people when you hear they're either victimized or they're or they're being a, a bully, you know, in the culture. But even that shows some empathy and caring for them. You're coaching them, making them better. And I think you build those bonds. And once that trust gets installed, they buy into the program. Another part of that too is giving them the latitude to be themselves. So again, let's go back to the janitor, if you will, that's cleaning the floor, a kid drops his ice cream cone, that person has to be empowered. Since you said you're here to bring people in and thrill them, he has to be empowered to say, hold on, son, and walk over and get him another free ice cream cone. It sounds stupid. It sounds Disney-esque. But that empowerment, I think, is what causes, which is a faster pathway to trust. And you let people make their mistakes. And then, you know, and then you coach. So um, it's not easy. And to your point, there are always people, particularly in an organization that's been around a long time and is the same owner, you know, you're not going to change their stripes very easily. And that's, that's where you have to have like accountability questions, you know, and they have to be both objective. Maybe that's based on numbers. They have to be subjective on how they feel and how I feel. But uh, yeah, it's painful, but it's also, you're doing them a favor. If this is not the environment for them, you don't just eliminate them if if possible if you can't move them and you have they have to be move on um another part of it again where the hr team comes in and they're so important is you know being empathetic compassionate and helping them find the next step you know and that's rare it's rare when someone lets you go that they step in and say what's going on how are you doing what can we do but um we tried not i wouldn't say we we're 100 successful with that but we we tried where we could to kind of start to wrap up the episode, you talked about love, energy, and work and in, in, in the framework, right, that you've that you've kind of put together. And, and I want to go to the point of what's first, second, and third, right? For a reason. Uh, yeah. it's not work, energy, love, it's not energy, work, love, right? It's it's specifically love, energy, and work. Would love for you to talk about why and kind of how that's impacted individuals as you've you know, spoke with them. And also, as you kind of reflect on on how you got to that point as well, uh, over such a long career. Well, there's such a debate amongst the people that I talk to whether it should go energy first, because then I can love better. If I love better, I can lead and, and work better. So that they, they can be mixed a little bit. But clearly, um, for me, that that's my personal venture was if I'm if I put myself in a uh, in a loving vibe where I'm you know thinking to be kind, compassionate, and calm, and I'm also looking to see where can I um, inspire and connect and encourage. You know, those are kind of my protocols. And then I would go in and look at well, what are the things I have to do? Do I have to pray more? Do I have to meditate more? Do I have to you know treat myself better? 
So that, that for me was a driving quality. Now, the overlay on all of this, and this is a Brian Johnson thing, you're really trying to hit on, I would say, eight really big um, virtues. You want to have wisdom, self-mastery, courage, and love. You want to have hope and gratitude, curiosity, and zest is energy, okay? So uh, I bring those up because that's those are things that are a part of the love piece, the energy piece, and the work piece. So it sounds a little complicated, but it really isn't. It really comes down to this. And that's why I used in the very beginning energy because it's so simple for people to get. No one can argue with the fact that the best behaviors would be good sleep, good nutrition, good exercise, good recovery, good breathing. They can't, you can't. And then you go into this self-discovery mode. And this is where you're writing your own script for these things. So back in love, I said, part of it, I want to be inspirational. But what are my protocols now? What are the, what are my, my hacks, my protocols that I have to do every day to be inspirational? What readings do I have to do? What meditation time do I need to do, et cetera? So I love it because it's so interdirected and you look at these different areas of your life, you say, what are the behaviors that would drive it the most? And then what are the habits I have to create daily and calendar them and keep a record? Did I do it? Did I do it? Again, like I'll go back to resilience code on this one, you know, getting in their program is no joke. You will get IVs potentially, you'll get peptides, you might get a diet, you'll probably get some meds and you'll definitely get some supplements. And all that takes a lot of, of discipline and engineering to make that efficient for you. But the beauty of resilience code is you'll get real-time data back, kind of like whoop, but whoop on steroids kind of, like here's what's going on, here's where your markers changed, here's where we went up, here's where we went down. Let's look at you subjectively and see if you feel as good as you do scientifically, objectively. So resilience code's huge for me in terms of how do you create a compliance and a, and a, and a motivation for people to stick to it. And then the heroic program is so fantastic because they have the rhythm of how you set it up, but they also provide you with lots and lots and lots of content to help you create your own hacks. And, it, you know, an interesting thing for them, too, they have an app where you literally put in your identity, your behaviors, your habits. And then as you hit them, you just swipe it off and you create points through the day. I think their long term objective, they call them uh, virtuous acts. Every time you do what you're supposed to is keep a worldwide scoreboard. And uh, I don't know where they're at now. They're probably at a million people. So oh, you got You got to measure what matters. Right. And so I think. Uh, you know, look, you're onto something. But I think what's interesting about all that is, uh, to your point about the discipline and and you know it being different for everybody. Not everybody wants to be inspiring. Not everybody wants to be right. the same way. And I think that's also a struggle for people to understand too. Is as someone who's a Type A person who wants to be driven, like not everyone wants to be that way either, right? That's and right. so. You have to try and meet people where they're at in terms of uh, figuring out what what drives them, what's part of their identity, uh, and, and how you can kind of mold that into, you know, I, I like to say there, there's always cultures within the culture too, right? Yes. Because, uh, right. Inherently, uh, you spend a lot more time with people in your department than you do the rest of the organization, and then 
you know, you kind of, you start to form uh, these little cultures within the culture. But uh, as, as a leader, one of my last questions to you is, as you have cultures within a culture, how do you make sure that they all align and that you're able to, um, again, it's not a micromanage, you know, thing, but if you have one or two that are a little out of whack, it's like needing to go to the chiropractor, right? You got to get it all aligned uh, back into place, uh, make sure that you're feeling good. That's exactly right. Because you're talking about cultures within cultures, which the big ones would be, you know, operational mindsets versus creative mindsets versus influencer type mindsets, like revenue people. And um, the only way you can do it, in my opinion, is to be have those different groups generate their sets of goals, check them off, and then put them into what I would call a, a strat plan document where it's like, here are the goals, here are the tactics, and then you force collaboration because somebody might have a new, new idea in, in marketing, but they need to have an operational checkoff, a legal checkoff, financial checkoff, and then they have to see if it's sellable, you know? Um, and I think we had way too many meetings probably around, you know, physically around that, but it was all to get people on the same page and to know, and I'll use a, just kind of a, a sports metaphor, you're a wide receiver, but your left tackle needs to know what you're up to and, he, and they need to know what you're up to, let alone the bigger vision, which is the defense has to know what the offense is up to and so does special teams. And, and that's, I think the orchestration of that is no different than a symphony. You've got brass, you've got strings, you've got percussion, but they all have to play the notes together and they play them differently. And if you don't have a plan that measures through, where are we? Have we started? That could be a yellow. Have we finished? That's a green. Have we not finished? That's a red. And you develop patterns. So if you're sales and you're depending on that creative and communication group to create a cool event for you around a particular demo, which has been told you by the data and analytics team what you need to do, you're waiting on them. But in this format, you can see how many weeks have gone by before the, where the ask was made. So it doesn't create negative tension. It creates awareness. And I think that creates safe space for everybody because it's on paper. You said you could do it. Let's go. And, and you're right. There will always, and there will be cultures within the culture, within the culture. It, it, it goes on and on and on, you know, and, and there's so much, um, you, you know, you try to stick to that thing of like, please, people, please don't make assumptions and please don't take things personally. That's a bad way to live your life. Just do your best and, and treat others the best you can. And it, it comes down to that. And, you know, you've been on sports teams, I'm sure, where you have players that don't play with everybody else. And it's like, Okay, but that always gets self-policed ultimately. It, it always it always finds its way to to come to the surface, right? Like one one, one way or another. But um, Dennis, this is this has been incredible. Uh, really appreciate all of your wisdom, insight uh, into not only your journey but just the the culture, uh, the framework. Uh, and what people can take away from this. And, and I would, the, the last, last thing I would, I would ask is um, if someone were to kind of create their own protocols, framework, whatever, um, how, how do they get in touch with you? How do they, uh, you know, if, if they're listening to this and they're like, wow, I really want to work with Dennis, how, how do I, how do I make that happen? 
Got to connect would, people. I appreciate that. No, I'd be very good with uh, one particular email. It's just my first initial D, Mannion, at legends7.com. Love it. Awesome. Dennis, episode three is in the future. We'll right. make it happen. All so right. I appreciate you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Life in the Front Office podcast presented by Suja Organic. Remember, you can get 15% off any one-time pack on shop.sujajuice.com with the code LIFO, L-I-F-O. And remember, if you like this episode or you like the Life in the Front Office podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Really appreciate you tuning in and stay tuned for the next one.